Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. And we will be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. So, Adam, over to you. The escape to Egypt. When they had gone, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left to Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized what he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because there are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in the dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went to live in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets that he'd be called a Nazarene. Thanks, Adam. Great. Let's have a moment to pray, and then we will study this together. Father, we thank you again for all that we've been hearing so far this morning, for new life, for the stories of Barry and Jill, for your work in their lives, and for the joy of singing these great songs at Christmas. And we pray now as we come to hear from your word that you'd speak to us, teach us, open our hearts and our minds and our ears, and help us to see Jesus afresh. In his name we pray. Amen. Why is this story in the Bible? The narratives around the Christmas story, why is this one in it? It's an awful story. We learn about one of the tyrants of the ancient world performing a mass killing of baby boys in Bethlehem. It's actually all a bit too close to home for us this Christmas, isn't it? The late Kenneth Bailey, a biblical scholar who lived for four decades in the Middle East, during which he saw many bloody and troubling wars, put it like this. The birth of Jesus is always remembered and retold in soft colours, with beautiful music playing in the background. The slaughter of the innocent Bethlehem baby boys is never part of any church's Christmas nativity. I cannot recall ever hearing the story read in any Christmas Eve service. Or can? Here we go. The faithful expect and are generally offered a story limited to joyful angels, excited shepherds, and generous wise men. The texts that are read are full of promises of peace mixed with visions of a beautiful child, a a holy mother, a courageous father, and some humble animals. There appears to be a conspiracy of silence which refuses to notice the massacre of the innocent baby boys in Bethlehem. Why does Matthew include it? I think here's why. Because it's a question that every single human heart has. Where is God 
when, the, when wars rage in our world and people die? Where is God in the mess? While the lights are shining in Dublin, the, Christ, the Christmas songs are ringing out from the shops, the turkeys are being prepared, the presents are being wrapped, the families are arriving in. There is so much to delight in and be happy about. There really is every Christmas. But in all the excitement, we know another side to the Christmas story for lots of people. Some people hate Christmas. It just reminds them of their loneliness and depression and the dysfunction of their family or their lack of their family. Some people are homeless this Christmas. And it reminds them of their pain and vulnerability. Some people are at war in their country this Christmas. And that comes after a year in in which so much blood has been spilt. Some people live under a tyrannical ruler this Christmas. And even if that is not the country we live in, we all feel, don't we, our world is just a little bit less secure, a little bit less safe than it was. Where is God in the mess? Where is God in your mess? Where is God in the war? Where is God in the global mess? Matthew chapter 2 tells us, doesn't it? Straight on. It tells us a very simple message. While the rulers of this earth bring death through strength of arms, the God of heaven enters the bloodshed to bring life through humility. That's why Matthew chapter 2 is in the Bible. That's why we need to read it this Christmas and every Christmas. Writing back in 2008, the late Kenneth Bailey, without a a view of current affairs, said this. Those who live in the Middle East across the second half of the 20th century, including this author, he had four decades there, experienced frequent warfare. In Lebanon in particular, there were seven wars in the 35-year period. One lasted for 17 years. Others were quick yet brutal. People saw friends and family killed by bullets and explosives and all the horrors of modern war. He asked the question, He lived through it. How do people retain a faith under such conditions? That's a very important question. How do you retain a faith when you see innocent children killed? How can you continue to trust in God when things happen, whether close to home or further afield? One answer is we must never stop reading Matthew chapter 2 every Christmas that tells us that while the rulers of this earth bring death, through strength of arms. The God of heaven enters the bloodshed to bring life through humility. Herod the Great was brilliant, brutal, and complicated. He was the Roman-appointed king of Judea, the king of the Jews, and he was paranoid as he was brutal. Bullies usually are. Bullies feel they have something to prove or defend. They have to use force to secure what they want, which really shows they are cowards. Herod's paranoia and brutality eventually caught up on him and he gradually disintegrated as a person. Historical records will tell us this. In all, he married 10 women. He killed several of his sons because he saw them as political rivals and he killed his favourite wife, Mariam. So Matthew chapter 2 is in keeping with every other historical record we have about the man that was Herod the Great and how he felt threatened by any potential political rival, even young boys like his sons. And if there's a king of the Jews that people are talking about, and if the Magi have outwitted him, well, what does he do? He does what Herod the Great does. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, which was probably around 10 to 30 boys in the small village of Bethlehem. Matthew then quotes 
in verse 18, Jeremiah 31. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah personified the nation of Israel as the matriarch Rachel. Jeremiah the prophet talks about how the matriarch Rachel is weeping for all the children that have been lost in 587 BC when the Babylonians came and displaced or killed all the, Babylon, all the Israelite children then. And Rachel could not be comforted, so great was the loss of those she had lost as children. And so once more, tragically, Matthew chapter 2 tells us that a few more of Rachel's children would cry out in agony as Herod gave the orders. Where is God in the mess? How do you attain a faith in such circumstances? While the rulers of this earth bring death through strength of arms, the God of heaven enters the bloodshed to bring life through humility. Did you notice how many prophecies were fulfilled as the desperate and terrified Mary and Joseph scamper from Bethlehem to Egypt to Judea to Galilee to Nazareth? So much displacement that so many in our world know. So much uncertainty, so much vulnerability, and all because of a paranoid and brutal ruler throwing his weight around. But did you notice how many prophecies were being fulfilled? Four. We didn't read it, but Micah 5.2 is quoted in verse 5. The Messiah of the Jews was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Verse 15, Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I will call my son. Israel's story was also Jesus' story. Verse 18, Jeremiah 31, we've read it. The matriarch rape Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And then the fourth prophecy, verse 23, so he so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he will be called a Nazarene. Why a Nazarene? Well, we learn elsewhere in the scriptures in John chapter 1 that nothing good can come from Nazareth. Jesus came from a backwater in the Roman Empire. No one cared about or wanted to visit Nazareth. Isaiah captured it so well many years before. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was a Nazarene unimpressive, undesirable, easily forgotten, and surely easy pickings for the powerful and ruthless Herod the Great, king of the Jews, ruling in Jerusalem. But you see what Matthew is telling us? While the local brutal and paranoid ruler throws his weight around killing baby boys, and Mary and Joseph run here and there and everywhere as the scared and panicked parents they must have been, what is God doing? He's writing another story. He's quietly fulfilling his promises. Another ruler is at work, but not through force of arms, but through humility and love. Though quiet and unassuming, the true king, the, tr the king that will have the final word in all of the world's affairs, the king who will one day triumph has entered this world in vulnerability and is fulfilling ancient prophecies and promises in the chaos of war. The greatest story ever being told is happening and no one knows. Kenneth Bailey, again, how do people retain faith in such circumstances? He answers, one answer is that we remember both the Christmas story and the cross. A mindless, bloody atrocity took place at the birth of Jesus. After reading that story, the reader is not caught unawares by the human potential for terror and shows its ugly face again on the cross. 
at the beginning of the gospel and at, and, at, and at its conclusion. Matthew presents pictures of the depth of evil that Jesus came to redeem us from. This story in Matthew 2 heightens the reader's awareness of the willingness on the part of God to expose himself to total vulnerability, which is at the heart of the incarnation, God becoming man. If the gospel can flourish in a world that produces the slaughter of the innocents and the cross, the gospel can flourish anywhere. From this awareness, the readers of the gospels in any age can take heart. Bailey lived through it all. He's a biblical scholar who studied these passages more than anyone. Do you see what he says? If you understand this passage, you can take heart. Our world of bloodshed and war has not been abandoned. Our world of tyrannical rulers and innocent children dying is not without hope. If there is no God, well, there is no hope. We are just a product of blind genetic replication, the consequence of an improbable being bang. There is no rhyme, nor reason, nor morality, nor purpose, nor hope, nor love in our universe, nor our lives. It is just survival of the fittest. It is chaotic. It is random. In the end, the strong do eat the weak in that worldview. And if the tyrannical rulers want to throw their weight around and kill off the weak, not only are we maybe not able to stop them, why should we even try to stop them? We have no moral authority or reference point to call them to account and to say what they do is evil and demand they stop if there is no God. If there is no God, there is no hope. It is just a mess, and it is a bloody mess. Matthew says no. As awful and as evil as our world is, another story is being written. The king has entered the story and exposed himself to total vulnerability. God became man. God took on flesh. God became vulnerable and mortal. God entered our world of flesh and blood, war and death. God was not immune. God came down. God became fragile in a bloody and evil world. And that fragile child, though he lived a life of complete obedience, love, Justice, mercy, compassion, and truth. Treating all people equally, never putting a fuck wrong, never saying a false word. He was love personified. And yet, how was this God treated? He was mistreated, misrepresented, betrayed, abandoned, beaten, flogged. And though innocent, he is the only one that could ever say he was truly innocent. He died at the hands of the cruel, cowardly, paranoid Roman rulers. He died on a cross. A shameful, excruciating, painful way to die. Friends, he died soaked in blood. Where is God in the mess? He's soaked in blood. How do you retain faith in such circumstances? You ponder what it means for God to enter the bloodshed as a vulnerable child. He could have stayed away, but he entered in to the depths of the evil of our world to redeem us from it. He could have used strength of arms and come and just wiped everyone out, but he wanted to offer forgiveness first. So he gave up his powers. He died on a cross. He rose again. He absorbed all the evil into himself, and he needed to nullify the two great enemies against the human race, sin and death. And he did that through his death and resurrection so he could offer us eternal life, and as we've witnessed today, new life. There is mystery There is wrestling. There is heartache and agony for every Christian that has ever lived. This is no simple question, but we can take heart. The gospel flourishes in the most unlikely and ugliest 
of places. John Stott once famously wrote, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God that was immune to it? But on the cross, beaten and bruised and covered in blood, that is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering becomes more manageable in the light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. Friends, even though I may not know the reason why God allows such suffering to continue, I know what the reason isn't. It isn't that he doesn't love us. It can't be, because he's proved that by entering our world and dying. He's shown that once and for all, the depths of his love in the incarnation and the crucifixion, all that happened, and all that happened under the threat of tyrannical and paranoid world rulers. We can take heart. Our world has not been abandoned. Our God entered our world. Our God died in our place. Our God rose again. And our God is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And when he returns, he will bring to account every Herod the Great that has ever lived. Justice will be done and will be seen to be done. And every innocent baby that ever died, somehow in God's great plan and great mercy, his unfathomable wisdom and justice, he will restore and explain all things one day. One day. In the first coming, Christmas, God came in humility to give life to sinners. In his second coming, he's coming in power to bring justice to our world of evil. The next verse in Jeremiah 31, speaking to the matriarch Rachel, goes like this. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own lands. In the end, there will be healing and victory and reward and hope and children are plenty. Revelation 21 says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. God will be making all things new. And so until that day, we take heart We retain faith. We keep trusting. We keep obeying. And our our lives may look like Joseph and Mary scampering around a world that seems very evil, but we can keep trusting and follow their example of courage and faith. Whilst the rulers of this earth bring death through strength of arms, the God of heaven enters the bloodshed to bring life through, through humility. So how are you going to respond this Christmas? Well, for those that find Christmas hard, be comforted that God knows your story, the number of hairs on your head, and he shares your pain. Draw close to him. Hear the words of comfort from Jeremiah 31. There is hope for you, declares the Lord. You are not forgotten. You are known. You are held. You are loved. May Matthew chapter 2 and Barry and Jill's story give you hope. Our God has not abandoned this world. He's entered our mess. For all of us this Christmas, let's pray for peace. 
not just in the Middle East, but there too, but all over the world this Christmas. But pray not just for peace, but for gospel advance. We don't just want people to know peace on earth. We want people to know peace with God. We don't just want people to know freedom from imminent death. We want people to know freedom from eternal death. Pray for peace and pray for gospel advance this Christmas. Three, for those of you that are Christians, let's never sanitize Christmas or take this story out of our Christmas narrative. Let's be willing to follow the footsteps of God out of our comfort zones and enter the lives of those who are hurting and in pain. When we consider what he did for us, God becoming human forever, we must be moved out of our comfort zones to go into other people's mess. And if you're not a Christian here today, and the reason for your skepticism is the evil and suffering in our world, we feel that doubt so acutely on our hearts. I hope today you've seen that there is still mystery, but we have a God who knows and cares and has entered in. And one day will return to heal every heart. And he calls you to trust him. Trust him as Barry and Jill have learned to trust him. Trust him as Mary and Joseph had to trust him. Why not start to trust him again? Or maybe for the first time this Christmas. Let me pray. And Leanne will come up and lead the the other song that Barry and Jill wanted, The Goodness of God. Let's take a moment to be quiet. We can stay seated and just reflect on God becoming a baby and becoming so vulnerable for us. Oh, great God of heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth, to you the nations are a drop in a bucket. And yet somehow... You, the great God that knows every star by name, you came and were born as an innocent baby boy into a war-torn world and your parents were running here and there and everywhere scared because people wanted to kill you from the word go and they did kill you in the end and you died on a cross. But you were fulfilling a great story of salvation of sinners and opening up of heaven and the final victory and justice that will one day come to this world. And so we thank you for your vulnerability and entering in. We thank you that one day you'll come again to judge the living and the dead. And Lord, when we don't understand why things happen and our emotions can't quite cope with what is happening, help us to retain faith as we reflect on you dying on a cross for us. And help us to retain faith knowing that one day we will have answers, even if we can't understand them now. So make us courageous and help us like you have done to go out of ourselves into the mess and into the lives of others. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.